Friday the 23rd of April 2021 and you're listening to episode 15 of Reds Unrestricted. Today we look back at three of the most incredible days in modern football history and consider what it means for the club going forward. Then for the final 10-15 minutes we look ahead to Saturday's game against Newcastle United. So you join us, obviously, at the end of an extraordinary week. Last week, we we made a podcast where we discussed the state of the, the top four race. But when Sunday night rolled around, that top four race looked like it, it might not actually matter at all. And as we watched Liverpool play Leeds on Monday, many of us were left feeling pretty numb. Um, and obviously, the events on the pitch were, were dwarfed by what was happening off it. And you know, for a few months, a few years, maybe there'd been sort of escalating talk of this of this Super League idea, but still, on Sunday, it felt like it came out of the blue, really, um, and it had the potential really to to fracture and, in my opinion, ruin uh, the game of football. And then, obviously, on Tuesday night, we witnessed what was a pretty glorious unraveling of the competition, um, and a lot of these owners being humiliated as all the English clubs pulled out. So it's only been a week since our last episode, but those three days really aged me a number of years, to be honest. It was, well, I'll, I'll touch on my emotions on it in a minute, but first I want to get the thoughts of our guest this week, uh, Chris Coughlin, a reporter for BBC Radio Merseyside Sports, who's also featured on the Redmen TV so briefly, Chris, try and talk me through your feelings on, let's say on Monday, because obviously Sunday we, the proposals came out, Tuesday there was some optimism, but Monday was really where the sort of the height of this. Cheers for having me on first, guys. Um, yeah, first of all, on, on Monday, Monday was a horrible day. Monday really was a horrible day. I went, I went to bed on Sunday just almost feel like, like it was some sort of bad dream and I was going to wake up in the morning and I was going to find a statement from these clubs uh, immediately backing out and then I woke up and I see the I see notifications coming through just about reports what, what it could mean stuff like that and and it just kind of hit home like whoa like that this this could genuinely be be happening um I think it, it was genuinely an emotional day Monday, I think, because I spent part of the day, you know, when you're reading about um, if they did go, would they have their titles stripped? Would they have their European titles taken away? All those kind of things. And I, I was at um, I was at the 2019 final in Madrid, and it, it, that that was the best day of my life. And just a horrible thought came across my mind on Monday. It was like, it is the best day of my life going to count for absolutely nothing? Um, and then we see on Tuesday, as, as you say, I, I like that phrase. I hadn't thought about like that glorious unraveling. I like that. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of that phrase because it was just one after the other, wasn't it? First of all, you saw the Chelsea fans at Stamford Bridge and you saw Petr Cech in and amongst them trying to get the bus into the stadium, of course, but also saying, look, we will sort this, we will sort this. And then no sooner was Chelsea, City fell. And then I think we were all just kind of waiting like, right, come on, Liverpool, say something, say something now, please. Um, and then it all completely 
uh, unravelled, and uh, thankfully we are, uh, you know, we're, we're um, we at least feel that we haven't lost the club. Um, I think, and th- there's there's still a few things that aren't perfect, like the the Champions League reforms that just managed to get you know conveniently tucked in on Monday. I'm I'm not a fan of them personally, and I think a lot of people aren't as well. Um, but it, it's somehow the lesser of two evils of uh, two pretty bad evils. But yeah, it was um, an, an emotional couple of days to, to say the very least. Yeah, we'll come on to the the Champions League reforms potentially uh, a bit later on. But you know, I, I fully agree with what you're saying, Chris. You know, there's no sort of hiding from the fact that it was it was a tough day um, because football's a, a huge part of of all of our lives um, and of our community really, and um, it. It felt like it could all be possibly taken away. And I felt a bit like you did initially, Chris, in that I was pretty bullish about the sort of prospects that's happening, thinking, oh, realistically, this is just uh, this will just be a passing thing. But I did start to progressively worry more, possibly against my, my better judgment. Um, the fear started to rise a little bit. But obviously, we're joined by uh, my co-host, Dan Club, as well. Dan, same question to you. Let's let's reflect on those sort of hours on on Monday where it, the uh, the uncertainty really was at a tight. Yeah, for me, I echo a lot of of what you guys have said. To be honest with you, um, it was a horrible you know forty eight hour period until it all started falling before our very eyes. Obviously, um, did, I didn't like the idea. Didn't like it in its current guise. Certainly. Um, and it was out the blue, like I think one of you guys touched upon. It just kind of, it's as if they thought they'd slip it in on Sunday afternoon while some sort of Super Sunday game was going on and and nobody would notice it had happened. Um, and it was easy to forget on Monday that Liverpool were actually playing a, a game that did have a hell of a lot of meaning on it at one point. But, you know, until the teams came out, I think I pretty much had forgot we were playing. And you're right in terms of, you know, even watching the 90 minutes there, it was like it was pretty pretty hollow and like even more so than normal um, without fans in the stadium because nobody quite knew what it meant like had we have won you know in hindsight it would have been nice now you know having pulled out of the Super League since it would have been a big three points but at the time it didn't really feel like it meant anything which was obviously really strange um, but yeah you know I echo what you guys have said I've got slightly different views on on the circuits that went around it if I'm honest which we'll touch upon I'm sure Um but yeah, I mean, I hated the idea. Didn't want Liverpool to be anything to do with it. Made up when we pulled out, you know, as I was with the other English side, because I think we all joined in unison for 48, 72 hours um, with our, you know, pretty much most hated rivals across the league, didn't we? I've never cheered on Chelsea that much. <laughs> exactly. exactly <laughs> on, yeah. uh, on, on, Saturday, on Saturday against City and, again, and then mm. on, uh, on Tuesday night. Yeah. On, on Tuesday night. I had uh, I had work to do for uni, and I was just uh, I was just sat there, and every time I'd almost write a sentence, I was like, okay, now you can refresh Twitter again. You've done a bit more work, and that's what it was like. But um, yeah, I mean, my overriding emotion really, just to sort of finish off this introduction, was was sort of fear because I I imagine all three of us, you know, want to go and, and work in in football, and this isn't. The kind of football that I'd want to work in and be a part of, I probably, you know, I don't know if this is just me being naive and principled or whatever, but 
I probably would have boycotted this tournament if it if it did go ahead. I, I don't think I would have I would have been watching the games. Um and this certainly wouldn't have been the kind of football that, you know, the readers of, of content, the consumers of content would most of them wouldn't want to have any part of it. So, you know, there was genuine, genuine fear there. Um and I thought we'd be in for a very different sort of kind of podcast um today. But thankfully, uh it can be a bit more sort of probably the overriding emotion and atmosphere of it will be will be relief. But let's let's think about what part Liverpool played in the glorious unraveling to use that phrase from earlier so on monday there were obviously press conferences before uh, our game but still Klopp's interview in front of the sky cameras and in front of a national audience felt like the first significant moment the first significant test really of of this composition and you mentioned the team news earlier dan I was so engrossed by watching Neville and Carragher and so sort of wrapped up in it that I literally didn't check the team news till probably 25 minutes past seven. And I was like, oh, God, Salah's not playing. Phillips is injured. But like normally I'd be there at 6.57 waiting to see what's what's leaked. Uh, but yeah, it just felt so secondary. So obviously you had Klopp's comments before the game. James Milner comes out after the game, says he doesn't like it, doesn't want it to happen. So it wasn't exactly all guns blazing from either of them. Um, I think you'd agree. But how pleased were you with the comments that they did make? Uh, we'll come to, come to you first, Chris. Yeah, I, I was very pleased. Um, I think er- earlier in the day, the, the one that kind of struck me was, uh, you talk about the press conferences, Thomas Tuchel's press conference for me. Um, it, it wasn't particularly damning of it. Uh, I think I think it's fair to say. Uh, I know people. You know, end of the day, um, the clubs employ these you know, employ these people. You might have to be a little bit careful in terms of what you say. But I just feel like Thomas Tuchel was almost prepared to go along with it. To be honest with you, which, which, I, which I didn't like uh, the the sound of. But then when you come when you come to to Klopp and to Milner, Milner for me was the key one in that you had a player. So experienced and what he's achieved, he might even still be underappreciated, to be honest with you. And he categorically said, I don't like it and I hope it doesn't happen. And that for me was quite a pivotal moment because you've got somebody who has seen so much in the game saying categorically, I don't want this to happen. And with regards to Klopp, him and Neville came to. sparring shall we say um but it was funny because they were sparring yet they were on the same team it was one of them where i think a lot of people might have got a bit confused about that but klopp was so clear in that even after go back to 2019 and it's so clear that klopp did not want any part of this and that is the main frustration that if him Milner and the rest of the milner said they only found out when everyone else was finding out that's the main frustration because i think there's there's a frustration from our point of view that this wasn't communicated to the fans. I think it's borderline disbelief that it wasn't com- that it wasn't communicated to the actual playing staff, really. Um, and then you saw, uh, I think it was early on the or Tuesday, wasn't it, about Jordan Henderson uh, calling the the Premier League players meeting. I mean, <laughs> what what more can you say about Jordan Henderson? Really, he's he's grown into such a leader. Um, at, at Liverpool, quite an iconic figure. I think it's fair to say, really, certainly going forward, he's someone that we all 
want to be a part of the club for, for many years to come. Uh, back, you know, obviously on the pitch and off it. Uh, and then the the joint message that you know they all said, right, we're going to tweet this at this point. Everyone's going to put up the same message, and it was just because that was after Chelsea and City had made had uh, pretty pretty much uh, pulled out, and it was just a complete bombardment from the entire playing squad. And I I don't know about you guys, I'm pretty sure you, you'll agree with this, but there was there was a sense of pride to be honest with you, at seeing the entire squad come together as one, post this message. And that, even before Liverpool said anything, that was that really, wasn't it? So I think Liverpool did have a big part to play in this, I, I do think. Oh, it's funny you used to wear pride because, you know, one of the very next questions I had noted down was how proud should we be to have this man as our captain? Um, obviously, oh, very, so, very. So, talking about Henderson and... Yeah, hugely. I remember writing a, an article last year uh, in the wake of the, the furlough controversy uh, about how it was Henderson who was sort of upholding the, the values of Liverpool as they were under threat by by the owners because, you know, he was the one he'd led some, you know, food bank initiatives previously and he was the one rallying the players to make the collective donations to the NHS. Um, so that was obviously a source of pride and he's distinguished himself again here, I think. Even just through you know simple gestures like a coordinated uh, response of our squad, and obviously that captain's meeting didn't go ahead in the end, but you can kind of guess what kind of messages would would have come out. It would probably would have been something similar, and that would have been pretty momentous as well. Um, I'll bring you in now, Dan. Let's talk first of all. I, I'll let you weigh in about uh, Henderson because I'm sure you can talk about that. But let's talk first of all about those sort of. Klopp and Milner comments because in the history of this episode, which is massive, those could be looked at as reasonably important moments. Obviously, they didn't come out as I said before in particularly damning terms. But do you think they might they essentially paved the way for others to sort of voice their opposition in much more sort of much more frankly, really? I think so. Yeah, I think you couldn't really have asked for a better person in terms of manager to to be in the limelight soon after it was announced in, in Jurgen Klopp. I think, obviously, like Chris touched upon, he'd already kind of made his stance pretty clear in 2019. So he didn't have to say a lot. He just referred back to that. And he just said, listen, my opinion hasn't changed because he's a football man, first and foremost, Jurgen Klopp. That, that's not to say other managers aren't. But you get the the overriding feeling with Klopp, you know, especially when we're in the ground, that he just loves football, just like the rest of us, you know his celebrations with the fans, the, the passion. And like I say, that's not that's not a slight on other managers, but but I'd probably say Klopp more than anyone um, is a true, true man of football. Like So he, like the rest of us, would hate the idea of a, a non-competitive Super League whereby, regardless of what you do, you're just in it. And it's for the elite and it's all, you know, a money-making scheme, which is essentially what it was. So I think he was a pretty good person to stand up and, face the brunt of it, even though I felt quite sorry for him because you could just tell he couldn't say what he wanted to say because he was bound by his employers, which is, you know, like Chris touched upon again, understandable. He's not going to stand there and say, listen, I hate it. It's I'll never be a part of it because that's not not realistic um, because he loves the Liverpool Football Club as well. I think he touched upon that well. He said, listen, whatever happens, I'll be here to, to see us through it sort of thing, which I thought was quite the mark of the man, especially given everything that's gone on. Um, as for Milner, yeah, echoed the same sort of stuff, really. So experienced. Another man who 
you know, all is that goes against everything he probably believes in in terms of what football should be, um, like it did for the rest of us, which is which is exactly what we wanted to hear, really. Um, and I think I've seen Jordan Henderson today described as like the captain of captains in the Premier League, which for someone who, for a large part of his early career, was pretty much vilified as not being good enough um, to make it, I think is quite a step up. Um, so a hell of a lot of credit should go to him. Obviously, we had the players together uh, scheme earlier on in the pandemic, which but whereby he got captains together again. So, you know, massive credit to the fella for obviously, you know, not only just performances, but how he's turned into a true leader. And we all know how wonderful Gerard was as a footballer for us, but there's an argument to say Henderson could be could be a better actual captain than him, which is which is saying a hell of a lot. Uh, when when this all kind of got announced for me, Jordan Henderson was the first player that I thought of because mm. I just sat there when I heard this announcement on the Sunday. I'm like, he of all people won't stand for this. Yeah, his background, given everything he's been through in his life, you know, come, coming from working class family, um, you know, we all know um, about the the heartbreak he's had. Um, you know, that, that scene after the Champions League final when he's given his dad a massive hug, you know, those yeah. kind of things. Jordan Henderson has incredible values and he was not going to stand for this for one second. So the fact that the, the first player I thought of with regards to any of this was Jordan Henderson in terms of he will not stand for it, it, it says a lot about the guy. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it also demonstrates how much he has grown in stature to the point where Dan can make it a claim like that and you know initially when he said it I was sort of stunned into silence which is why I'm glad you chimed in Chris but but to to be fair it is a valid point you know what obviously being a captain of a football club like Liverpool it goes beyond on the field and obviously on the field he's led us to a first Premier League title anyway but Mm. you know he's distinguishing himself off the pitch as well and really I, I look at this Liverpool squad and sort of at the moment over the, the last sort of year or so probably he has been my, my favourite player and um, the one I almost you know if you said to me like who would you want to score the goal um, that won Liverpool a major trophy if you asked me that question right now I'd say I, I'd probably want it to be him um, and that's probably a barometer of, of your favourites I'd say but obviously we're all you know filled with pride um, in that instance but let's move on Let's change uh, tone a little bit and we've got to talk about FSG. So we woke up on uh, Wednesday morning to an apology from uh, John John W. Henry. Uh, and the quote that stood out for me was when he said that he alone was responsible for the unnecessary negativity brought forward over the past couple of days and that it's something he won't forget. What do we make of this? Do we, do we think it's a, first of all, Chris, do you think this was a sincere apology? Um, when <laughs> it, it was literally the first thing that I saw on the Wednesday when I woke up and I saw the tweet. Uh, of course, you, you, it, there's some there's some videos that we all scroll through Twitter and we click on it for five seconds and then flick straight back off it. But th- this was one that you you had to watch in its entirety. Um, the video itself is more than some owners did. I think it's fair to say um, the, the the statement. Let, let's make it clear: the statement on the Tuesday night was literally um, like 312 characters. You could almost fit in a tweet 
in terms of the entire statement as a whole. So that itself while, you know, ruffled a few feathers, I think, uh, amongst the fan base, I think that's fair to say. With the video itself, other owners maybe did open letters, but to to see John Henry sitting there, yeah, that we had to hear from him eventually, because as well, even on the original statement, the only quote was from Joel Glazer, which <laughs> to have a quote from him on, on a Liverpool statement, it just made it even more mind-blowing. Um, do I think it was a sincere apology? I think he's accepted that he, the, the, this is of, of all, because you know, they haven't been perfect owners. Yes, they saved the club in 2010, and I'll always be grateful for that. I will always be grateful for that. Um, but you look at the £77 ticket, you're looking at the furloughing that we were talking about. Um, and this, in terms of their own goals, because their own goals have been staggering, this was. You can't compare this. I don't know what they could do. <laughs> I don't know what they could do after this. That'd be worse than this, to be honest with you, um, unless you reach levels that are just unthinkable. I think it was an acknowledgement of how much in the wrong he is, um, or was, certainly. Uh, it, it'd be a brave for when... I imagine that we'll see him at Anfield again at some point, obviously um, permitting with, with restrictions and stuff. Um and I saw some people saying, well, oh, you could see the screen, this reflection. I don't know how he was meant to remember two minutes worth of, two minutes worth of words to, to, to speak. Um, but I, I think he, he didn't have to. That's the thing for me. He didn't have to do it. And the fact he did do it, fair play, John Henry. He has you know, owned up and to say he himself was responsible. It, it, it can take a lot because you've got to remember these are people. It, it was a bad mistake. Um and you know, hopefully we'll move on for it. Whether, whether his position as owner is untenable, we'll see. Because the thing is about the money. You bought Liverpool for £300 million, and now Liverpool are worth best part of £3 billion. So it's who who, you, who would take Liverpool off his hands. Um, but yeah, when, when I saw the video, my reaction was at least he has said something. That, that, that was my reaction. Here's the thing for me. You mentioned the £77 ticket, the furlough. Um, obviously, that's not all we've seen as well. The the trademarking of mm. the attempted trademarking of Liverpool, and yeah, I, I read the statement and I understand what you're saying, Chris. But when he says it's something he won't forget, I just can't help but feel that they've forgotten every single time. Each time it feels a bit empty, doesn't it? Yeah, each time they've apologised and said that they'll learn, but they're not understanding why it affects us so deeply every time and it's it's because of it flies it flies in the face really of you know how liverpool as a city has these sort of socialist inclinations and it's just sort of a flagrant disrespect of that and i don't think i think he sees the surface backlash and that's why he's apologizing i don't think he's apologizing because he's sort of offended the, the community in, in kind of a profound way um so I the apology itself was reasonably okay, but I I don't read it and and think you know what FSG will now make every effort to redeem themselves. You know that's yeah, not the thing. Don't know when we'll hear from them again. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um. So, Dan, um, obviously you might want to talk about the apology as well, but I want to move the discussion forward a little bit. Chris alluded to it in his answer. Do you think there's any way back? Uh, for FSG from here? I must admit, I'm quite conflicted on this. Um, 
it's so difficult because you know you both alluded to factors they came in and saved the club which was in a, in a far worse state than it is now so obviously you've got a fan coming away for that but there is a definitely an argument to say they've served the purpose in that um they don't particularly fund the club they fund them on the basis of selling players as we well know they're looking for profit but same time, the businessmen, so you're not really going to get someone that's going to come in, you know, incredibly cash rich and just throw money at it. That's, that's highly unlikely. And it's not necessarily a model I'd like to see us go with either. So I am really conflicted. I mean, I wrote all the things down that we touched upon here prior to this in terms of the furlough scheme failure, obviously, and the backlash and the 77 quid and all that sort of stuff. So they definitely don't learn from the mistakes. There's no, there's no getting around that. Um, which is a terrible trade to have, let's be honest. Um, probably what, what got to me the most this week in terms of our involvement in this was the fact that I can't look past the fact that we were probably one of the the ringleaders, if you like, in making it happen. Um, and that's basically solely because of our American ownership. Um, and it had a very American MLS-style feel to what they were trying to do. Had we have just been one of the also-rans, as much as I wouldn't have liked it, I think some of the clubs probably got involved a bit of a fear of missing out. Like, imagine, I won't name any of them, but imagine one of the clubs didn't join and it had been a raging success and, you know, these clubs are making £350 million a season on top of everything else and they weren't kicked out of their domestic league, you know, and you got invited and you said, no, you'd miss out, wouldn't you, essentially? As it turned out, you know, whoever had said no would have been the heroes in many ways. I think PSG have been kind of painted out like that, which is laughable in itself in many ways as is a lot of the people who've been painted out to be heroes this week to be honest some of the hypocrisy around some of the people who've been calling it out and the organization has been laughable um to be honest with you but in terms of back to fsg I, I do think there's a way back to be honest i do um what that is i'm not quite sure but we've got to be careful what we wish for in many ways as well with this because although they're by far from the best owners we could possibly have. They're probably not the worst, Eve. Like we've all seen clubs run much poorer than we are at the minute. And the decision making has been terrible. There's absolutely no doubt about it. I'm not particularly, I never have been particularly partisan on FSG out or in, to be honest with you. I wish I did have a, a stronger side to sit on, but I just fear we all seen what happened with Hicks and Gillette, and we've all seen what happened to a football club. So I mean, decision-making is horrendous, but at the same time, I feel like it could be worse, to be honest. Well, we don't have to have a, you know, a strong, passionate opinion on every single issue. And I understand that there could be worse arguments in terms of the, the practicalities of this. And on top of that, let, let's acknowledge the fact that emotions are pretty raw right now. But, I mean, do we realistically think that John Henry could go to Anfield watch the, the club that he owns in action. Do, do we think he could he could do that off the back of this? I, I, I think the reception would be so hostile that it just isn't a realistic option. Maybe in, maybe it changes in more than a year's time, as I say, when the emotions are less raw. But can someone really own a football club when, I mean, maybe Joe Glaze is the, the, the example. <laughs> the epitome of, can, of it, yeah. Can someone own a football club when they aren't even convinced that they can get away with watching them play. I, I was saying uh, to one of my United mates, because believe it or not, they, we, it's, it's actually possible to have uh, friends that support Man United. Um, but I was saying to them, 
I have seen from the outside looking in, I've seen such a little involvement from Joe Glazer. If you put him in a line of 10 randomers, I'm not sure I could pick him out. Not prior well, to all this. <laughs> that just shows how, how little he was involved. And it's it's incredible. I, I was thinking as well, of course, I know there was a bit of a leak prior uh, to all this, wasn't there? But then they announced it with no one in the stadium to give it pelters. Yeah, they're not daft. Yeah, with no one in the yeah. stadium to say anything back to them. Yeah. So that, I mean, we're, we're all praying and praying and praying that in August we all get back in. Anfield can be back at its raucous best again. August, it, it's a bit painful to think August might be the best opportunity in terms of uh, you know gathering inside Anfield to let FSG know what we think. Um, I mean, but but if that is the case, then we all have to gather together and just say to them, look, you've messed around enough times. That if you, know, you could say this is your final, final, final warning. And I think for a lot of people that might be the case, as you were saying, Dan. It's like I'm not I'm not particularly like FSG get out. I'm not amazing in, in terms of like FSG or you've got to stay. I'm I'm not particularly one side or the other. But for a lot of people, for a lot of people, this will have been their last chance. For a lot of people, it's their final, final, final chance. Um, but yeah, what one once Anfield is full again, then we can give the proper, you know, let them know what we all think. Well, my worry is, in terms of being the last chance, is that if this is the direction they want to take Liverpool in, then... Mm-hmm. That's, it's like an elephant in the room, isn't it? It's a deal-breaker for me. But um, it could be argued that it's going to be very difficult to find any owner who, even if they say at the start, oh, you know, they say announce their commitment to these football and values, whether they actually mean it or not, because I, I think there's... I'm not exactly sure, but I think there was some quotes stuck up from FSG's um, arrival, um, kind of espousing those principles. And obviously that goes out the window um, when some of the uh, the financial incentives are floated. But sort of staying on, on similar territory in terms of the future of these proposals um, and the future of the, the Super League idea, really. Um, the Times have reported today that any club who tries to Join a breakaway league such as this um, in future uh, will be. Um, I think they've been threatened with their expulsion from the Premier League or at least very severe punishment, um, which indicates that this time there isn't going to be a significant punishment handed down by the Premier League, possibly because of the quick U turn. But there have been calls, uh, probably led by Gary Neville uh, on Sunday, for some you know, points deductions to be handed out. Um, and sort of other very severe um, reprisals along those lines. Um, Graham Sooness and Jamie Carragher argued uh, on Sky on Tuesday that that would actually punish the fans, the players, the managers, the people who've actually done a lot right, they've not done anything wrong in this process. Uh, I was convinced by the arguments. Then I saw some tweets from fans of some of these football league clubs who've been hit with massive penalties down the years because of their owners' failings and said no, nobody took any notice then when we were hit, getting hit with those deductions and making the same arguments. So it's a dilemma, but and it's difficult because we're all Liverpool fans, so none of us want to see um, Liverpool hit with a, a, a sporting penalty for this, but 
do we think there sh should be some sort of punishment handed out or maybe a better question do we think it would be fair if that kind of punishment was handed out and if so what should it be what do you think chris this would be down to uefa but for me some people might listen to this and think i'm crazy but if if all the clubs involved were banned from europe next season i don't know how many complaints there could be about that because the 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 12 involved certainly the owners it could have ruined football as we know it and I heard, obviously you hear Neville talk about relegation all that kind of stuff for me that that would have been a step that would have been a big step too far um you're saying about the you know the argument about punishing the fans but I've, I've got I've got a mate who's a Wigan Athletic fan and they should not have been relegated last season they got given their points deduction mid-season yet Sheffield Wednesday got given theirs at the start of this season and I, don't, I think Derby escaped it altogether for um, for money issues as well. Um, so in terms of you know punishing the fans, you're punishing. Yes, you could say you're punishing the fans, but you're punishing the actions of the people in charge um, for things they've done involving money and greed, aren't you? Um, for me, you know, it'd be up for the powers that be in terms of those finer issues. But for me, genuinely and this this is just an opinion that I share even if it does involve Liverpool a, a, at least a one year European ban I don't know how many people could complain about that in my eyes Well, interesting Dan, there's a dilemma here isn't there uh, for the footballing authorities between a sort of conciliatory approach where they try and maybe make some changes to the game that will favour those clubs so they won't be tempted to do this again in future but also there'll be sort of factions who want to sort of make sure, go, go for a sort of deterrent approach really um, mm. and slap mm. them with a hefty punishment to make sure they are almost too sort of, almost try and scare them into not taking these kind of steps again. Where, where do you stand? Yeah, I, I personally think it'll be the former. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of the threats we've seen when this Super League proposal first came out was, I think a lot of it was based on fear from the likes of the Premier League and UEFA thinking we really can't afford to lose these 12 clubs. And I think for the same reason, they won't throw the book at them on this occasion. Um, I think we'll see some sort of punishment, but I do think it'll stay financial, um, having a look at what's been said in the interim. Um, because I think if you start talking about points deductions from the league, um, transfer embargoes, and obviously you know, being banned from Europe, that's kind of cutting the nose off despite the face. Because um, obviously these clubs again are going to go. That's how you treat us. Next time the Super League comes around again, they're going to be involved again, and they're going to have the same problem all over again. The last thing the Premier League need is the big six clubs leaving. They know that. They know that for their own broadcast rights. They know their product is diminished dramatically without them. So they're probably not going to want to annoy them too much. Um, which is wrong in so many ways. It, you know, it sounds silly to say, but I'm just being practical. Um, and the same goes for UEFA. As much as you know, they've handed out punishments to clubs before individually. I think a blanket ban to, to twelve of their most profitable and best clubs just isn't realistic at this stage. As much as I agree with Chris in that, I don't think we can argue with it if that's what they did. But at the same time, it's just not realistic. Um, in my opinion, I think we'll just see fines. What I will say is, is a lot of this week I touched on it earlier with some of the hypocrisy coming from Gary Neville in particular, talking about greed in football whilst bankrolling Salford in the Football League. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
I found that outrageous, to be honest with you. And there's been quite a lot of that going on. UEFA on their moral high ground um, was also bizarre. But at the same time, you know, you've got the likes of the Everton, and this is not just a local thing, but the Everton owner coming out and saying they need to have points deducted whilst going on about them being self-serving, these six clubs, I think, that like self-serving interests. Well, if all these six clubs get points deducted, then that's the self-serving interest of Everton because all of a sudden Everton in the top four. Do you remember last? Remember in the summer as well when it was pretty much, if you want to classify these these six, it was like pretty much the other fourteen in terms of not wanting five subs. Yeah. Despite exactly. the fact this we're going to have a schedule like never before, players yeah. Yeah. so many injuries have been suffered. That was yeah. self-serving interest for them. Exactly. Null and void is a similar argument as well. A lot of these sort of clubs wanted null and void. So it's quite cynical to say that from from my behalf, but at the same time I can't help but feel like that's the case. Like. Everyone's out for their own interests, aren't they, at the end of the day? Let's let's be frank about it. There might be the odd one chairman, chief exec, that genuinely thinks about the greater good. But these people are often all businessmen, so they want what's best for their club. Um, So I can't help but feel like a lot of the calls to punishment have been because they suit their agenda. This should be viewed, really, as a victory for the supporters um, and a a victory for football. Um, And, you know, the reality is a lot of these sort of people in the positions of ownership are self-serving as well. There might have been some hypocrisy, but also, just to finish off on this, I do wish we had more time to discuss it, but we've got to look at Newcastle. Just to finish off on this, I'm glad that, for the most part, the hypocrisy accusations were sort of put on the back burner Monday and Tuesday, sort of towards the start of this week, because it really was important to have a united front, and you almost wonder if those owners who were proposing it where some of them almost banking on the division sort of preventing any sort of concerted opposition that didn't prove to be the case thankfully and we saw a uh, a very um morale raising united front as i say so i could discuss and i'm sure the lads could as well discuss the the super league fallout all night and you know one thing we haven't been able to mention so far is the uh well, I think it was briefly the two earlier, actually, is the Champions League reforms. Um, certainly, there's some Super League principles um, in there, and I very much hope that um, the sort of effort from the European Clubs Association to get those scrapped uh, pays off. Um, I saw that some reports that there would be a sort of some pressure put on UEFA there, and uh, hopefully, yeah, that that leads to something because you know football might still be headed down a bit of a dark path. But there is <laughs> there is a match on Saturday and we'll look at it now. It's half 12 kickoff against Newcastle. And obviously what the collapse of the Super League at this stage means is that the late equaliser we conceded on Monday and the missed chances that we had. Andy Robertson, I'm looking at you for miss hitting a three-yard through ball and um, could really come back to bite us in the uh, top four race. And, um, Looking at it, we might um, sort of build on what we discussed last week. We sort of said uh, five wins and a draw out of seven would do. That's what I said anyway. We've got the draw and now we're probably going to need to win five of our last six games. Uh, so we failed to capitalise on on West Ham's defeat. So how do we want Liverpool to line up uh, for this one against, uh, against Steve Bruce's side? Um, Dan? I'll let you go first on this. What's uh, what's your team? Yeah, um, just to just to touch upon what you said there, we 
you know, we barely touched on the match for obvious reasons, but obviously I think we probably should have beat Leeds even I I'll rewatch the game because I couldn't really concentrate first time around for obvious obvious reasons. We probably should have put them to bed before they even got going, to be honest. Um but as for the weekend, I've gone with uh, Allison and Goal, um, Trent, Kabak, and I've gone with Phillips, hoping he's back because in the midst of all the chaos, we've lost another central defender to injury. Um, if it's not Phillips, I kind of hope we see Ben Davis uh, for all the Fabinho in midfield reasons that I've spoken about on here many a time. So I've gone with Kabak and Phillips anyway, if fit. Andy Robertson, despite the uh, overhit pass that you mentioned, um, and I've gone with Thiago, uh, Fabinho and Milner, obviously uh, Fabinho at the base rather. Um, and I've gone with Milner again, even though we kind of spoke about this last week um, and in terms of his role and not having as much of a squad role. But I think in the absence of Henderson, we spoke about the leadership qualities earlier. I think Milner's got a huge part to play in this running. Without Champions League football, I think we could see a hell of a lot of him between now and the end of the season to almost try and five was over the line, to be fair, um, in, in games that mean a hell of a lot by the looks of it. So, yeah, I must admit, I, when we drew, I thought immediately of our chat in terms of what we we're going to get points-wise. Um, and I think, you know, provided we don't draw all the games, unbeaten might be the key. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I've gone with I've gone with Salah, Jota and Mane as a front three. I think I've actually been quite impressed with Firmino the past couple of games, but that's the fun thing I think is our strongest at the minute. And I hope our pace there can hurt them. So, yeah, that, that's my team anyway. Do you know, with for me, you know, like, I, I have to disagree, Dan. Like, I don't know. It says a lot about his decline that the performances he's putting in, he's getting, he's getting praise for for me because what sort of standards do we expect of him now? Like, I actually, I find it difficult to watch him. You know, for me, you know, was at a point my favourite player, but now literally he's there's a, there's a clumsiness to his play, and when he shoots, he can't seem to put the ball in the corner. Like it's, I, I find it quite, I find it quite tricky. Um, so I went with the same front line as you did. Um, in terms of Phillips's fitness, uh, I'd say unlikely just because of the usual timeline for a hamstring injury now. I looked at the training pictures before and it seemed like he was doing some running away from the main group mm. and that indicates he might have a chance uh, for Saturday. Um, my guess would be that he wouldn't make it, um, but obviously the, the main thing really is that he'd be back for back for United. Um, if he wasn't fit, then I'd be slightly tempted to give Ben Davis a game as well. Although... I do think it, that is about as likely based on what we've seen as Florentino Perez becoming uh, <laughs> the president of the Football Supporters Association. <laughs> um, what, uh, what we'll see. Uh, maybe he'll surprise us. Midfield, um, I'm, I've liked Milner recently, so I wouldn't mind. I've gone with Wijnaldum, Thiago and uh, and Jones. If he if he isn't quite ready, Jones, obviously he's only just back in train and then yeah. I'd be looking at uh, Shakiri or Keita and, and yeah, recall for Keita um, because I do think we need a player of that ilk in a, in a game where we're going to be up against a very deep set defence. Just someone who can sort of, you know, really present that attack and threat and, you know, provide that spark in terms of, you know, with Jones is his, his direct run and is a 
the way he wants to mm-hmm. take on a man, similar with Case in, in many ways. And Shakiri um, is obviously someone who can pick out a, like a pass, probably has the best vision. Him and Thiago probably have the best best vision in the squad, I'd say. And yeah, as I said before, the, the front three is sort of a, a no-brainer. So, Chris, similarities, differences in your team? Uh, quite a lot of similarities. Uh, if, if, if Phillips isn't available, I want Ben Davis to play because I just don't want to see Fabinho anywhere other than number six. Yeah, it, 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 it's it, He is the best there for me. He, he I mean, we saw how good Casemiro was for Real Madrid, but I just think Fabinho there it is, for me, the best defensive midfielder in the world. The the, the back five, if you want to call it that. Allison, Trent, uh, Phillips slash Davis, you know, and uh, Kabak and Robertson. The midfield, again, Fabinho. I've got I've got Milner and Jones because I agree with what you're saying about Milner. And in the absence of Henderson, there needs to be as many leaders on the pitch as possible in this kind of scenario. And I it 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 really does annoy me this because I, I loved Thiago at Bayern Munich. Absolutely loved him. I just don't get why he's diving into so many challenges. I've I've never seen him jump into challenges before, and may, maybe it's because the pace of the league's different to the Bundesliga. Um, perhaps doesn't get as much time on the ball as as you would at Bayern Munich. Well, I, I just don't get for someone so experienced. I don't get how he can't adapt his game to that. And I, I got quite excited when I saw Jones in full training today. Mm. Just you saw as well. Uh, in, in the under-21 Euros, there is absolutely no surprise that they started to play well when he played. <laughs> it, um, it absolutely amazed me that his first start in that competition came in England's last game. It, it absolutely just... I, I, I was stunned by it. But then that's that's a topic for another day and A.D. Boothroyd's leaving, so that's good for the under-21s. Um the front three, yeah, Mane, Jota, Salah, I think. Firmino, I agree. I agree with David. Firmino at one point was genuinely my favourite player and we, we were saying about the system and him, him being the system. I think it could be time for that system to get a major tweak just because we, you, you guys both saw on Sky a while back, they were talking about the cycles of front threes. And I think it was Cara who was questioning whether Liverpool's the cycle of Liverpool's front three was at an end. And I think we might have, you know, with the, with the signing of Jota, we might have seen sort of something alluding to that, perhaps. Um, but that, that would be the team that I'd go with because Newcastle, you know, we say we maybe have a bit of a joke sometimes about their style of play under Steve Bruce, but they've only lost once in seven games. And I feel like that's a bit of a stat that's gone under the radar somewhat. The last three games, they've got seven points out of nine, and they've dragged themselves clear at a crucial time. And that's probably because Steve Bruce looked at it and gone, right, we're not going to stay up playing the kind of football we were earlier this season. So how about we've got attacking players? How about we actually go for it? It was a good result against um, against Spurs, though I do think Newcastle, certainly the way they started the game, probably should have got themselves clearer before Kane scored twice. The Burnley game, I- I'm a massive, massive fan of Alan Maximan. Massive fan. And he turned it around after coming off the bench. And against West Ham, you know, brilliant results. Um, West it helped us, although we didn't make the most of it. But hopefully, um, with West Ham versus Chelsea this weekend, mm. hopefully uh, the result in this game can uh, help us before that even kicks off. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's uh, 
whether Bruce has decided to to go for it more or whether St. Maxim St. Maximin coming back um has sort of had that natural effect. Maybe it's a bit harsh to say that because I think you know their expected goals against Spurs is one of the highest we've seen all season. Um and four it, four points something? Yeah. Which like doesn't that. reflect well I mean, on, on with, Mourinho. With him and Wilson, I, I can't justify predicting Newcastle win without him and Wilson basically. No. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's the thing. Yeah, you can only deal with what he's got, can't you, Steve Bruce? To be fair, like without them two, they're by far and away their best players. So, without, I mean, Almiron's not bad, but without those two, they, they haven't got a lot going forward. But the thing is, like, I remember reading an article saying that <laughs> there was a, I know there was a suspicion that Steve Bruce was essentially going to try and draw his way to survival. <laughs> uh, because if he if he drew every single game, then they'd end up on about thirty seven points. But you know, uh, fair play to fair play to them for getting for getting those points. And the key thing about that, from our perspective, is that it means that a lot of the pressure has been lifted. Um, mm. Chris, what's your uh, what's your score prediction then? Uh, well, I've uh, I've gone two 0 to Liverpool. Um, I think. New, well, Newcastle's record, firstly, at Anfield is absolutely yeah, disgusting. Isn't it? It's absolutely awful, thankfully. Um, I remember a couple of years back, they came from uh, 2-0 down. Um, obviously, they were one win score when, Scott, when Suarez scored one of the best goals I've ever seen. Um, all those years back, uh, just that that, that, t- that touch, that finish to take it around, Tim Crook. Oh, it's, it's lovely just thinking about that. Um but yeah, I've, I I do think as as you say there, the pressure is now off Newcastle. If they were in a worse predicament, I think I could see it maybe being a, a bit of a tougher game. I remember well last year uh, or last season when uh, glorious sunshine, Anfield was packed. Uh, they, took, they took the lead through uh, Yet- Yetro Willem's brilliant goal, has to be said. But then that was kind of the attitude that we saw in terms of the ruthlessness of Liverpool that day. I mean, Mane scores a brilliant goal. Um, capitalizes on a goalkeeper mistake to put plus two one up, and then Salah. Talk about Firmino. That Firmino's assist for Salah in this fixture last season, the uh, the, the pirouette, the mm. pirouetted pass. Just I, I, I mean, I'd love to see a bit more of that on uh, on Saturday as well. But uh, fingers crossed, uh, comfortable as can be, and two uh, nil, and uh, move on in the quest for the top four. Yeah, you mentioned that Firmino pass. I was actually I was at that game uh, last uh, I think it was September and uh, I was in the, the in the Anfield Road and uh, I think I had pretty much the perfect angle uh, to see that goal. Uh, that was yeah, him at his best, wasn't it? Yeah, and that was back when Liverpool coming from behind was a bit of a formality and Liverpool yeah. Liverpool at Anfield was a formality and you mentioned Newcastle having a poor record there, but. I can think of one or two yeah. other, one or two other sides. <laughs> or five, or, five or so, five yeah. or six or so. <laughs> You've sort of rectified that, but um, I'd be similarly optimistic. I think it does feel like the kind of game we could almost absolutely dominate and and still end up drawing, almost like maybe a little bit like uh, West Brom um, or something like that, but. I think it's also worth noting that St. Maximin went off injured uh, last week, which didn't look too serious, but we'll see if he's at 100% uh, for this one. Because as you say, if they can get both of those players on the pitch, I think Newcastle might might fancy it based on Liverpool's Anfield frailties. 
but I do think we'll win. Um, and I've I've gone for I've gone for three one. Uh, Dan, uh, come to you to for your prediction to finish. Yeah. Um, so I just want as we speak, um, there's game there's a game going on with the connotations for this fixture in a way. Leicester are beating West Brom two nil. Um, I thought yeah, you were about so, to announce a big Sam masterclass for a second. No, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately not. Um, but obviously that's bad news in one respect in terms of Leicester pulling slightly away in third. But it pretty much means Newcastle are even safer than they were previously. Um, so that's half a positive at least. Uh, and for that for that reason, to be honest with you, not just based on this game, but I think Newcastle probably are safe now which will mean they might have a slightly different approach. And they could also target games further down the line to pick up points from them. Steve Bruce might see this as a little bit of a, a bit of a free hit in a way, which could bring them out of the shell a bit, which would, uh, which would help us massively. So, yeah, I've, I've predicted a pretty comfortable 2-0 win, to be honest. And it could be more, that's me being quite circumspect, especially for me. Um, yeah, I think it'll be pretty, pretty straightforward. That's certainly what I'm hoping anyway. And I still, I still think we get top four. Sorry to interrupt. I still think we get top four as well. No, I, I think our running, it feels like it, it's almost in our own hands without it be without it looking like that on points, doesn't it? Yeah. Our, yeah. our running is the best for me of of the teams uh, going for the Champions League. I think West Ham have a decent one as well, but it, I'd I'd rather have I'd rather have ours over West Ham's to be honest, mm-hmm. and Newcastle as well. Just looking at the fixtures now, if they are in a little bit of bother, and I don't think they will be purely because I can't see Fulham and West Brom picking up enough now. No, if they are in any sort of bother whatsoever, they've got Sheffield United second to last game. So <laughs> they're three, yeah, yeah, there you go. You're right, yeah. Um, this, um, this game at the weekend looks big, doesn't it? Chelsea West Ham, yes, like I mean, I mean, I don't know about you boys, just a, a draw surely has to be the best yeah. result from our perspective, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Well, you know. Sort of before this week, I was looking at it as we've got a leap Prague, West West Ham, and Leicester, but Chelsea dropping points against Brighton. Mm. Um, maybe it's Chelsea we we should be paying more attention to. But you know, Liverpool have, you know, they're actually in pretty good form. I know we've not won our our last two games, but I thought we were great for the first half, the first part of the second half on, on Monday, and even though Leeds then began to show what they were about. We could have killed that yeah. game off still. Uh, we had the chances to do that. And obviously, we also played very well against Real Madrid again, a case of not taking chances. Um, but, you know, to come back to what you said, Dan, about Newcastle viewing it as a free hit, I know there's this idea that when you play the reigning champions, when you play a team as big as Liverpool, you're naturally going to raise your game. But there's absolutely no excuse for Liverpool, I think, in these kind of games. What like We should want it so so mm. much more than Newcastle do um, and obviously that alone isn't enough to get the result but um, you'd hope that it can uh, sort of see us through but we'll have to uh, I think we're coming up towards towards the hour mark for the podcast so we will have to leave it there but before we go um, thanks very much Chris for uh, coming on today and uh, very much enjoyed uh, our uh, discussion about about the Super League in particular I'll give I'll give you the opportunity we, we give to all our guests to uh, to plug any work that you might want uh, some of the, the listeners to have a look at. No, th- thank you very much for, for having me on, guys. Really appreciate the invite. Uh, if anyone fancies listening to a, another podcast as well, uh, I, I uh, present and uh, produce the, the Match Day FM podcast as well with a 
couple of weeks of university, we we did a little commentary service at university, um, and then uh, we we picked it back up uh, at the start of uh, last year's lockdown when uh, podcasts were all the rage, and uh, everybody has a podcast now, so <laughs> I might as well uh, plug that. And uh, yeah, just uh, if, if you want to follow me on uh, Twitter, it's uh, at c coughlin nineteen ninety five, and uh, I'll accept all followers. Nineteen ninety five. That. Uh... That cherished year. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, oh, yes. But uh, yeah, I'll put that Twitter in the uh, in the episode description. Uh, before we go, any final thoughts from you, Dan? Well, I was just hoping you were going to give us the uh, round the world update. To be honest, yeah, I had the look last night actually in uh, in preparation, but it looks like uh, we don't have any new new entries on uh. the list. But I'm sure we'll make up for it next week with with someone from Vanuatu or or Hopefully. something like that. That's what I look forward to most of all, to be honest. And I'd also like to mention Ozan Kabak's new song. If anyone hasn't heard it, yes. please, please go to that. Yeah, for me, for me, it's a dance move. Um, yeah, yeah. So about twenty seconds in, that makes it. Um, the problem is, I'll never get up if I try that dance move. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even bother. Very one of the cop ends on there. Yeah. Uh, right. As I say, we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll be back at the end of next week to preview the Manchester United game and hopefully reflect on what should be a routine victory against Newcastle but until then have a good weekend thanks for listening This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts.